When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. On this episode of the show, it's all things grouse hunting, habitat, and mapping with Ann Jandrana of Northwind Enterprises. Welcome to the show for episode number 76.
Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. I'm hopping in the truck tomorrow, heading west to North Dakota for a prairie hunting trip. Be out there for a few days, and you can bet I will have Onyx Hunt with me. I've got my offline maps downloaded for the trip out west. Offline maps have been approved this year. They're even easier to use than they were before. You don't need service with Onyx. A little preparation is all it takes. Download your maps and you know where you stand regardless of whether or not you have cell service. One of the many great features of Onyx Hunt. Check it out today. Use the promo code PUP20. That's PUP20. That will get you 20% off your subscription to Onyx Hunt. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Learn more about the Pine Ridge experience by visiting pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dogtra Callers. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Check out the collars and all of the products from Dogtra by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance, so when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything, that is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. Grouse season opened up last weekend. Pretty wet out there. We had soaking rain all week. I knew it was going to be wet. Gumleaf boots kept my feet dry, comfy. They are the ticket in the grouse woods as far as I'm concerned. If you're looking for a waterproof boot and one that will last, I highly suggest you head over to gumleafusa.com and check out their boot selection. If you have any questions, give them a call. Talk to Jack. Tell him we sent you. Check it out today, gumleafusa.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordy and Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, all of it, by visiting GordyAndSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. I got my Dakota 283 G3 medium kennel in. It's in the truck. It's not going to leave the truck for a couple of months, that's for sure. Everything you and your dog need for a safe and successful hunting trip. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door. Check them out at dakota283.com. This week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Doug A. Doug shared a recent episode of the podcast. For that, we thank him. He's got a Project Upland t-shirt headed his way real soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that in any of a number of ways. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post send us feedback or a guest suggestion we'd love to hear from our listeners email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com and don't forget september is public lands month bha backcountry hunters and anglers fighting for your public lands fighting to keep them in public hands and fighting for your access if you're not a member of bha 
I suggest you look into them, find out more about them by visiting backcountryhunters.org. And if you sign up this month for just a mere 25 bucks, you get a free public landowner t-shirt. Go check them out, backcountryhunters.org. All right, we're going to get into today's episode of the show. Rough grouse season's open in the Great Lakes states over the weekend, just in time for your early season adventures and to keep you informed the rest of the way through the season. We brought back one of our favorite guests on the podcast, Anne Janderna of Northwind Enterprises. She is the creator of the Scout and Hunt mapping system, most commonly known for her rough grouse and woodcock cover maps, although her business has expanded, as well as her map selection, which we talk about today. Anne is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to rough grouse habitat. I always enjoyed speaking with her, and this time, we gave listeners the chance to have their questions answered by Ann. We had a great conversation. If you want to learn more about hunting rough grouse and the habitat that they live in, stay tuned because you're going to learn a lot today. Let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast of Northwind Enterprises and Jandrana. And Jandrana, welcome back the Project Upland podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, great to be back. Well, we're very happy to have you back, and I know our listeners will be as well because we asked them to submit questions for you, and I know that's a big that's a big part of your business, isn't it, And You get a lot of questions from people, from hunters asking about maps and grouse cover and all kinds of stuff. Every time I chat with you, you always reference a conversation that you had recently with somebody that called you, and I feel like you do a lot of explaining things because you're so knowledgeable about this stuff. Well, that's a huge part of the business. I mean, if you can be a resource for people, I mean, granted, yes, I sell maps, but I would like to see people get the most out of their hunt because, you know, you wait all year to do this. And some people drive 20 plus hours just to go hunt someplace and they waited all year for that, you know, that opportunity to hunt. It's special time. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, with the maps that you provide and the information that you provide, it is valuable, but it's almost, it does take a little bit of deciphering. You can't just look at it and automatically understand exactly what it is. So there's value that you can add to folks using their products and you can help them use them more effectively. And that's obviously, that's a big part of it. And that's why we love having you on the podcast. In case anybody You've been on the podcast twice before. We had you on in year number one. We had you on in year number two. We're kind of making this an annual tradition, which is cool, right before the Great Lakes grow seasons kick off. So that's why we're happy to have you back. But just in case somebody is listening and hasn't had a chance to listen to your first two episodes, could you give us a brief overview on Northwind Enterprises and, and Scout and Hunt and kind of the things that keep you busy every day? Well, my background's in forestry. I graduated from Michigan Tech up in the yeah, Fulton Hancock area of the UP. Ran a lot of logging crews, worked with a lot of veneer, marked a lot of timber. The other aspect is I work with GIS, and uh, the maps came about because basically I had one hunting trip ruined. This was before there was even maps, and everything was being hand-drawn. So I uh, started the maps up, and then, you know, the concept was there, but, you know, it took an injury to really push me to create the, the maps, and... Uh, They've developed from paper maps to and maps that you can use in like a 13 by 19 to uh, your GPS map that go into the GPS. And then Scout and Hunt took a while to evolve into what it is today. And a lot of that was just literally waiting for the technology to come up 
waiting for the technology to catch up yeah. yep. with what was in my head. And now it's mobile. It's like using your phone like a GPS. And it's nice to have property boundaries, but the more information about habitat and being able to zero in on specific habitat is key for the grouse. And that's part of the reason why the maps are detailed. You know, like the scout and hunt in the Midwest, I mean, the layers are running anywhere from 24 to 36 layers in these maps. You go out to the out west maps, and some of them are way over 35 layers. Wow. So it's not good enough to me to say, go to the X and hunt there. I want to know, okay, what age is the cut and what size is the cut and what surrounds the cut. Uh, so this is what's all involved. I also work with, uh, you know, bird dogs. I did a lot of dog sled racing prior to this, so I've got 25 years of that prior to doing the bird dog stuff, and I've guided for, well, each time we talk, it's getting closer to 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, you know, whatever hat I need to put on each day, <laughs> I put it on. Yeah, well, you know lots of stuff about a lot of different kind of stuff, but it definitely, it's it's all centered around bird hunting and, and bird dogs and habitat, which is obviously a really high interest to the folks that listen to this podcast, myself included. And, you know, I've basically had two years to kind of ask you the questions that are rolling around in my head, and I learn something new every time we have you on. So this time it, we thought it'd be fun to turn it around to the listeners and let them get some of their questions in. So I'm excited to do that. Before we jump into the questions, Questions. We are, you and I are recording this on September 10th, which is just days before grouse season, rough grouse season opens up here in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So we're kind of, folks will be listening to this probably either right before the season opens or just after it has opened. So there'll be a lot of people that are excited to get out in the woods. What have you seen this summer? And I don't want, I don't want to ask you to make predictions or anything like that but have you been out in the woods have you seen broods have you have you picked up on anything just from your casual observation Ann? yeah we had a weather event around may 19th it affected the almost like from your area across duluth into ashland you know the town of ashland and over into the up yep and sort of north of there and a little bit south of where i'm at and it was like a three almost a three to three day event i think and if you back up from that event five weeks, that's when the drumming was really getting going big time. And it's five weeks from when they mate till they lay the eggs and they incubate the eggs and then the eggs hatch. And the timing could have been worse. Now, I'm not saying, oh, it's horrible. No, don't get that. But there, because of that, not for every bird, you know, some of those birds probably had the hatch after the event, sure. but if they had the hatch, hatch a few days beforehand or during it, it was a disaster. So I have seen second broods and, uh, you know, a second hatch and younger, younger chicks, and I've seen older chicks, but I've seen broods anywhere from literally three all the way up to about eight um, or nine, and I just think it all boils down to when did the mating occur? And when was the hatch? And sure. we had an awesome drumming season, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I had some phenomenal dog work uh, this spring. But um, as far as rain and weather events and precipitation analysis that I do, it's been pretty good. And another way you can 
double check to see if you know if you're thinking, well, you know, it looks really good here, is I actually go on to the state. Um, it gives you the information if there's any West Nile cases. Okay. There's hardly any. There's hardly any even in Michigan and Wisconsin. Minnesota's a little harder to find that information. Now, would that be so, West Nile cases like in humans? Is that what they're reporting? Everything. Oh, everything. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mosquito pools, birds, horses, humans, everything. Okay. Uh, 2017 was actually like the second worst that I think that they ever had recorded in Wisconsin. Okay. And so this year, it's like it's silent. So I'm not saying it's not out there. Right. I, I still, still think it's out there a little bit, but time will tell. I've seen a couple broods here in the last three or four days here, and they're all. What I'm seeing, where I'm seeing, they're they're in the swamp still. Seems like if I run into mosquitoes, then I'm running into broods. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I, well, you're getting down far enough. Sure. Yeah. They're still there because everything else is so dry. We've been a little bit drier. Yes. So you have to go down by the moisture, and then all of a sudden you pick up those mosquitoes. And I have heard drumming already. So oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, when the drumming picks up in the fall, that's that's like a territorial thing, right? That's correct. It's the old guy saying to the young ones, get the heck out of here. But <laughs> it's also, it tells you something. He's not going to drum just to stand there and drum and announce it. He's drumming because he's receiving pressure from a juvenile. Got it. So you hear drumming. Best thing to do is um, don't go directly toward the drumming. Make a sweep out and around. And I hate to say it, sometimes you find the young and the dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I end up doing because the old one knows to retreat. He'll retreat, but the young ones aren't educated yet. Sure. Yep. So they'll, they'll hang out there and they think they've made it. <laughs> okay, I would just ran the guy off. And, just, and the <laughs> old one's saying, no, I'm getting out of here. You can just stay here, okay? <laughs> Yeah, I have gone after a fall drummer a couple of times in recent years, and most of the time not successful. The last time I recall doing it, I I did find the bird. Of course, I missed it with both barrels, but I found it and I saw it on the log. You know, my dog was on point. There was the drummer on the log, and I think I had way too much time to think about it. And he uh, he lived on to drum another day, so I guess that's okay. But it is pretty neat when you can hear that and you can walk in, and it's always always amazes me how that drumming sound, you know, the way that it works, the sonic boom, like it sounds like it's so far away. And then the closer you get, it doesn't, it doesn't get increasingly louder the closer you get only to a certain extent. And then all of a sudden you're just right on top of the bird. Right. Right. Another thing too, is if you're stalking them nine times out of 10, they'll be drumming to the East. So you want to think about your reference point of where you come at them. Oh, interesting. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, like anything in life, there's exceptions to any rule. Yeah. But typically it's to the east. And you, when you see the log for future reference, then just look where the droppings are. It should be on the backside of the log mainly. And that's so you know which way he's facing. All right, so if, if folks are hoping to get out and uh, find some grouse, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to put on their bug spray this weekend. That's what you're telling us, Ann. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I guess so. I mean, it just it seems like you know sometimes you sometimes you find them in one place and sometimes you find them in a different place, and it just yeah. Lately, it seems bug spray time. Yeah. Um, well, we've had kind of a, I don't know about where you're at, but we have actually had a pretty decent, you know, once August ended, I mean, things 
pretty much cooled down. You know, we got into the cool evenings and the mild days pretty fast in September. And it's been, I, we haven't had a lot of, a lot of days over 70 degrees in September and the forecast kind of extended forecast actually looks pretty good. So it's kind of shaping up to be a good early season. Hopefully those mosquitoes won't persist too much longer just for our own uh, personal comfort out in the woods. But anybody going out this time of year knows that they're in for a, for some thick foliage and probably some buggy covers. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just a fun time to get out. Yeah. Beautiful. I think the fall colors are coming on quick, but you know, I do too. Are you dry over there? Like we are here? Well, we were, we were very dry, but now in the last week or so we've had a couple right. of like all day overnight rain. So we, it's, it just got wet in the last week. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has here too. So, I mean, but it's soaking it up pretty quick because I mean, even our raspberries weren't that huge this year. Yeah. Um, compared to other years. All right. Well, we're going to jump into listener Q and a pretty quick. We're going to tee it off where I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of front run the listeners here and, and ask a question of myself, but it actually does. It applies to a couple of the listener questions sent in and it has to do with, we're going to circle back to rough grouse and woodcock, but this has to do with a trip that I'm going on next week. I'm going to head out to North Dakota and many folks may not know that Scout and Hunt has expanded beyond the rough grouse and woodcock covers of the range of those birds. And Scout and Hunt is a resource that can be used beyond rough grouse and woodcock hunting. So that'll probably be of interest to some new listeners to this podcast. I'm going out to North Dakota. I have the map. I haven't had a chance to spend a lot of time looking at it. And so going out early season, I'm hunting sharptail, grouse, and Hungarian partridge in North Dakota next week. What are some of the things the map's going to tell me, and how can I best utilize it, and how could other folks do the same? Well, you know, it's a different it's a different landscape out there. Correct. Um, from what we're used to dealing with here in the grouse woods. But I think, like, when you think about any bird, or any animal for that matter, they have needs. And they have needs of food, cover, and to be able to retreat when they need to, and so forth. But of course, it's pretty wide open out there, and... One of the things that, okay, it's okay to, you need to know where, where you can access and where you can go in in the public land access areas, especially like the walk-ins. But we tested this last year and I had really good response back from it. Like for instance, alfalfa. A lot of people like to hunt alfalfa because it's good for finding sharp tails. And there is an alfalfa layer in this map. Actually, all of them that I'd use, you do, and I'm doing North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Iowa. So I bring the alfalfa layer in there, but that's not the only layer I put in there. There's always data about how much of this crop was planted in any particular state. And long story short, there's a tremendous amount of conversions I have to do to bring in, to let you know, you're not going to know what was planted this year, but you will know what was planted last year. Because they don't have that information all gathered up yet, and they don't release it till later on, past after the seasons are closed. But if you want to know what's pasture land, what's barren land, what's idle land, where was the sorghum last year, what is crop land, where's the alfalfa, where's the woodlots, where's the conifer, where's the lowland areas, I put all that in there. And it lets you have a visual before you get out there and say, Oh, there's crops here. There's crops planted this year. There, there's um, pasture land here. 
this walk-in looks like it's just pasture land, but there's an alfalfa field. And typically alfalfa is on a three to five year rotation. It's extremely expensive to plant. And I planted a lot of it when I was down in lower Michigan. And when you put it in, you're just not going to rip it up the next year. I mean, you have, you'd have to have excessive flooding or something like that happen. So when they put it in there, at least out in Michigan, they wanted to get anywhere from three to four to seven years off of that alfalfa crop because of the expense of putting it in. The sure. seed is just really expensive. So you'll know where that is there. And then I also put in the temporarily temporary and seasonal flooding. Now, areas that temporary flood and seasonal flood are your low spots. And a lot of times those little potholes, you know what, they're ringed with cattails. And so that's trying to help you find out where the low spots are. And it can show you where a bird might go to to get away into something thicker. Because typically as you go down in anything, you get thicker cover. Sure. Um, so that's that's the big thing is that it's crop data and the wetland data. And there's also, you know, you're able to bring the imagery in there and look at the area as well. But yeah, that's I'm I'm really excited to kind of test it out and take a look at it. And that is one thing, you know, I took my first trip out there last year, so I, it was totally new to me. And getting halfway decent at looking at satellite imagery back in the Northwoods, you kind of learn, you know, you can you can glean some information looking at satellite imagery. But when you when you look at satellite imagery of North Dakota, boy, I'm sure you could pick some things out. And but it was it was a complete different animal for me. I mean, it just was like there was almost nothing there. It just kind of all looks the same. So it was hard to it was hard to take away from that. And I also didn't have any on the ground experience to know that okay, I found birds here. This is what it looks like. Whereas this year, I will have at least one year of experience to to utilize that. But the more you know about the cover that you hunt, I think the better off you are. And that's kind of what what you're aiming to do is inform people about the covers and look at these layers and they can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together and help you replicate one cover to the next when you find success. Right. Like, you know, all you have to do is tap on it. Like alfalfa is purple. So you tap on that and a little bar comes up down below and it says alfalfa. And then like, I'm looking at a place here right now that, you know, you can see that it's uh, pasture land. You can see that there's an area right here is uh, your temporary flooded areas. So those are those low areas in the pasture land that, you know, or even if it's a crop land that you know that it's there's not a whole lot going to be in there. So let's just say the back end of the field is extremely low, you know, and you're seeing the shape for lowland or temporary flooding. And, you know, those are areas that a lot of times there's two things that can happen when it gets really dry. The, you know, they can plant it, but if it's a wet spring, like some of those areas were uh, this year, there was that, depending on how close you're going to be to the areas that flooded, that area won't get planted and it'll grow up in weeds right now. Whereas a dry year, they're going to try to plant as far as they can into the edge of that temporary, you know, flooding area. Sure. So it gives you an idea once you start seeing that, okay, so this is what's happened in this area. They were able to plant all the way in or they weren't. And there's all of the weeds back there. So, I mean, there's more places for the birds to run into. Yep. Now, of course, the, certainly the public, the public land ownership landscape is a lot different out in North Dakota. Right. Now they still have the favorable public access for hunters in that if a if a piece of property is privately owned but unposted hunters can hunt it so that's helpful 
the data and the layers that you're getting, I'm a, it has to be on, on both public and private land, I'm guessing. Is that correct? Yeah, some of it, you know, what if I put all the crop data in there, I don't think you guys could even load it in your... Sure, uh, it'd be too much. It'd be too much. I What I have done, okay, for all the layers, I've done all the alfalfa. And I know the guys that go out and do the field trial training out there, they said, Ann, just give us that for the whole area. Any alfalfa you can give me, we want it. Okay. And and so the alfalfa was across the whole state. And then the wetland information's across the whole state. But you'll find that there's areas that when you take the shape of the walk-in file, and then I make a request of the computer to give me everything, information that touches it. So it'll churn out that, but because of the way, if you had a, you know, this is a fingers going out of pasture land from the western edge of the, like a walk-in area, yep. it, could, it could go out three miles. Sure. So that, that information is just stretching out. So you can't crop it and just say, okay, you can only go this far. It's going to follow the information out and it will extend past a particular walk-in area. So it's not just like the Aspen information where everything touches it really close and it's pretty, you know, pretty tight. Yep. This will spread out okay. more. So but there's no way that I could do at this point. I'd have to chop the state into probably four sections to give you all that information. Sure. And it was a large map as is, you know, when I downloaded it the other day, it was larger than, than some of the other files. So no, that's cool. I'm looking forward to to testing that out and seeing what what we can find out there and putting it to use this fall. So, but for folks that are interested, that's a good thing for them to look at. If you're hunting out in what was it, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa. I mean, you got Kansas. you got maps all over the place. Kansas, out Kansas. there, and next okay. year I'll be adding more western states. Okay. Cool. Well, with with that kind of covered, we're going to transition straight into listener questions, and these will probably center mainly on rough grouse and woodcock hunting and bird dogs and stuff, so we'll have some fun with it. But I'm going to start with questions we got on Facebook. The first one is from Davis Vbeck, and his first question, he's got two. What is your recommendation on intro to e-collars in terms of age? So he's obviously talking bird dogs there. You can't just cookie cutter it because not one size fits all. I think you have to sort of gauge the the dog and its maturity. And but typically, I'm thinking six week, sixteen weeks on. When you start to lose that control over just calling them back and the independence is starting to show up, that's when I sort of say, okay, it's time. And I, you know, I put a lot of work with my puppies to have them go out and run around, and then I just give one long whistle. And that's not a whistle on my neck, just me whistling and bring them back in. I also set an imaginary boundary that you're only going to go out this far and then I'll just turn you and bring you around. So they get really acclimated to it. And even, you know, by 12 weeks, I'm having to go and go one on one then because, I mean, otherwise it's a mob. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the funny mob is a mob. <laughs> <laughs> And then at one point, the whole mob says, to heck with you, and we're out, we're going yeah, this way. There they go. Yep, there they go. <laughs> and so uh, that's when you bring the, the dog fish bowl, bowl, the dog food bowl, and you bang it, and then they all come back. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a few tricks up your sleeve, man. Yeah, you do. So, But it, I started around 16 weeks. I start out with them wearing the collar, 
And I try to maybe start it a little bit before I think I see that independence starting. And I tend to use the dog truck. Uh, for me, I tone to bring them back. And I like it because it also has a vibrate on it. Yep. Um, which is a lot. It's like they get over it quicker than if you use the E part. The E part for me, I try to avoid until they're about closer to 18, 20 weeks old. Sure. And then you start extremely low, extremely low. And, and you, you always make sure before you put the collar on that the transmitter is set at the lowest level. You know, because if I run an adult dog and then jump back to the puppy. Right. Those are two different levels and you don't want to make a mistake. Yeah. That's the other really nice thing about the doctor collars is most of them, I know they have a few that are different, but most of them are set up with that 127 level rheostat yep. dial and you know somebody might hear 127 levels and think what the heck well about the first 30 of them you you base you pretty much can't even feel them to the human touch mm-hmm. but some dogs right. will feel them so they give you a lot of functionality and a, the the ability to fine tune to each dog which is really nice right right all right yeah. so D- davis has another question kind of kind of a similar question as far as young bird dogs what is your recommendation on intro to gunfire so he may be asking specifically on time frame, like his first question. And if that is the case, I would also be curious to hear your what is your approach to intro to gunfire, Ann? So timing and timing and approach. The timing is is when you've done the foundation work of introduction to birds. Yeah. Of I don't expect these pups to be slamming points and everything, and I don't mind them chasing. I want a puppy actually moving when it sees a bird. Because a lot of times I'm introducing it around that 20 to 24 weeks, sometimes maybe just a hair earlier, but usually not, because I want them mentally. You know, the body might have the size, but the mental part may not be there yet. And what you're going to do is, at least for me, is I want the bird to go up and I want the puppy to run out. And the reason is, is because while it's running, it's totally engaged in the bird. Fire the starter pistol, do it to the point that you do, you see no reaction, none. And then after that, it'll be one day I'll shoot once, then the next day I'll shoot twice, and the third day I'll shoot three times. And I try to do this like almost three days in a row. And, you know, it's just getting used to that, and it's only a single shot. It's a 410, and I do not shoot directly over the pup. I go out to the side of a 45 from it, and I try never to shoot over a young puppy. I'm shooting to the left or something. Just I don't want it in that percussion area. Sure. And just be very careful. Take your time. Don't push it. You're not in a race. You don't want to do any do-overs. Yeah, very well explained. And the goal there is when you're doing that is like you said and you want we want the puppy to not react at all to the gunshot you want the pup to be totally engaged in the bird what happens if let's say the pup is chasing the bird and you shoot the the starter pistol and you took every precaution and you shot it the other way what happens if the pup stops turns and looks at you what do you do Ann? well first off i'd hide the heck out of the gun okay yeah, the yep. um and then i'd act as nothing happened mm-hmm and a lot of times, okay, this sounds ridiculous, but a lot of times I'll have a second quail with me and uh, or another bird. And as soon as that, that puppy, basically, I have an opportunity to put that quail out, 
I'll get it engaged in, into the messing around with the quail again. I don't want to associate it with a bird. So I give it a, a quick distra- distraction and have fun. I don't bring the starter pistol out again. Yep. But I basically, oh, this is just fun. You know, oh, okay, it's birds, birds, birds. And, and, that, and most of the time, you know, the other thing, too, that you really want to watch for is you need to make sure when you, you're giving that pup an opening for the bird to go that way and it's for to continue to run. Don't have a barrier of like a the edge of a edge of a, a trail with high grass. You don't want to, to release the the uh, bird or whatever the puppy chases it, and within ten feet it's like trying to hit hit a wall of grass and brush uh, because you just right then held your held up your pup short. You know, not every pup is just going to bust grass and brush you know bust through brush. Um, a lot of pups, you know, with people because they walk them and they're in town and they're in suburbs and that you're walking on a sidewalk all the time. And to them, there's an invisible, invisible barrier because you've kept them right in that little area. And I've seen that with pups that have come in is that they basically think, oh, I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right because I've been walked so much and this is where I have to be. And puppies really relate to the height of the visual barrier uh, because if it's too high, you know, it's way over their heads or whatever, they just think they can't get through it. So, you know, you have to think about, I try to have a more open area. Another thing that you can do, you can take a, a, a trap, a launcher, and you can put a dead bird in like a dead quail in, but fresh with another quail, or you can do a pigeon live and a pigeon dead, put them together and, you know, make sure your pup is acclimated to that. And then, you got when you release it, the one flies away and the one drops at the same time when you shoot. Um, so it gives you the opportunity to do a couple little things because heaven knows half the time I can't shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not the best shot. <laughs> yeah, me either. Working on it. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> so. All right, good stuff. Well, we'll we'll move on to the next question. Uh, this one is from Pete. This is uh, his question: Is does Ann have a preference of dog breeds for grouse? I think you do, Ann. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sled dogs, right? Oh yeah, sled dogs. <laughs> yeah, I did have a sled dog that used to go with me marking timber, and Patches did point grouse, but she always lifted her back leg. I kid you not. <laughs> no <laughs> kidding. Yeah, she she lift her back leg, and I had saddlebags on her, and she'd carry four quarts of paint, and we'd go way back in on the ATV. She'd ride on the ATV, and I had a box in the back, and she'd be up in the box, and this dog was like a comedian, pure white, <laughs> and she put her paws on my shoulder. If anyone saw us coming, you know, here comes me driving the ATV with a sled dog looking over my shoulder, and we'd get way back in there up in Michigan, and, and so... She'd be running around and with the saddlebags on and a little bell chasing everything all over the place. And I liked that because there was a lot of bears where I was at. Sure. And, uh, and, but uh, every once in a while I'd hear the bell stopped and I figured, well, she either had it checkmunk cornered. But then I saw her, she had pointed a grouse. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Yeah, it was. So I started out with LHU English pointers. And the reason why... I started out with LQ English pointers is because I liked sort of that quote peas in the pod and I made it work and I guided with them 
and I held them where I wanted to, where, where I needed to have them for my clients because I've always felt for the clients that the hunt needs to unfold in front of them, not chasing a GPS because they need to see part of the hunt is seeing the dog work and everything that goes with it and the excitement that builds as the dog starts, you know, shortening up its quartering and you can tell they're getting birdie and then the point and the whole, it's what grouse hunting is. And so I did that for quite a while and it worked and it didn't work for me. And I think we all have our preferences and I'm just, you know, for me, I remember saying I always wanted a setter and I wanted a dark one. Hmm. Um, a friend of mine, which unfortunately has since passed, um, he asked me if I wanted a puppy one day when he, I was, I was doing, you know, just, I was probably five, five or six years into doing the maps. I said, sure. So next thing you know, he brings this puppy up. And of course my name's Ann and he names it Annie too. (laughs) And he comes up with this little cute, oh, setter. And that sort of tugged at my heart. And, and, uh, I guess I could relate to it because, you know, the Tuskies have more fur in the, (laughs) like gosh, probably. Um, but, um, it's been the setters and for me and, and everyone has their different preferences. It doesn't mean anyone's better than the other, Yeah. but the setters are what I do. And for, since then I've branched out to importing setters from over in Europe and, and the UK and lines from there. So it's, it's been a, it's been a long journey, but I'm happy with what I'm doing. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to do what makes you happy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good advice. We're we'll we'll cover some of this at the end, but if people are interested and they want to see your dogs a little bit more, where should they go? Um, my Facebook page is you know Ann Janinoff Facebook okay. page. You'll see there's lots of videos and you know, you're either gonna see something about a map or you're gonna see a dog. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. All right. Next question from Joe Carlson. Is there anything Wisconsin grouse hunters can do to collectively show our desire for the season to remain open through January. So some interesting things going on there. I will preface that a little bit by saying, in case anybody doesn't know, last year the Wisconsin grouse season was shortened up by a month. Usually you could hunt through January. They shortened it about a month last year via an emergency rule. The same thing is on the table this year. Another emergency rule to shorten the season by about a month. Concerns over West Nile, drumming counts, all kinds of stuff. A lot of moving pieces that we're not going to talk about all of them. But Joe's question also assumes that you and or at least the person, somebody is is of the mind that we should that we should keep it open in January. And I don't necessarily know exactly where you stand on that. So if you want to comment on that and talk about the Wisconsin grouse season at all, feel free. Yeah, I mean I think it's divided, you know, people can go do their own polls and all that for, you know, people that think that everyone wants it open. Right. Um, as a guide, and we're talking, we're getting close to 20 years here. I'm of a different opinion. And first off, if you want, if you need to make your voice heard, I think you need to talk to those that were on the board for putting the proposal together and talk to them uh, and find out who you need to talk to. But that's, you know, with that being said, I mean, if they have meetings, you need to go. You need to basically uh, write letters for how you feel about it to the DNR or to whoever it may be. 
for me, I'm happy to see it close at the end of December, that first little bit of January. Because when you look at, you got January, February, March, and then it starts usually around the first part of April, depending on the weather. And that's not a lot of months to ask the carryover or what your breeding stock is to recover. You're asking them to recover in the worst time of the year, the hardest time of the whole year for them. And I think our numbers have been dropped some. I mean, since when is 20 to 30 flushes the new normal? I can remember lots of days where I had 45 to 55 flushes a day. And that was like 2009, 2010. So I don't see the numbers up at that level. You know, you're going to work your tail off for, for something way up, you know, numbers. And I just, it's not there right now. And it doesn't all come back all at once. And it comes back in pockets. And so you need to let these birds have time to not be pushed. And the other thing, too, about these grouse, they don't carry hardly any fat into the winter. And on top of it, everything in the winter is about conserving energy. Because even when there's three to four inches on the ground, the grouse then has to sort of fly more because they sink in. It's fluff to them, and unless they have ice. And then the other issue is, I mean, if you don't have enough snow and we get those sub-zero temperatures here, then they're sending ducks out in the cold at 20, 30 below yep. underneath a pine tree. That doesn't do anything for them. And see, at the temperature at 20 degrees and below, they have to speed up their metabolism, which means they're burning fat. So how many things do you want to keep adding onto the list of pressure that you put under on a bird that's just my feeling because i you know people say oh they don't shoot them out of trees they don't do that and i'm just like i live up here sorry (laughs) (laughs) one (laughs) one person might not but i know that another person will oh yeah Yeah. another person will and and no offense to the locals but it happens yeah you know it happens and if we could guarantee that the weather will cooperate, if we can guarantee that, you know, they go into the fall in great, great, you know, in great help, but a second hatch won't go into the fall, the late season into winter and great. I mean, they're going to struggle because they're behind the eight ball in growth. So, I mean, yeah, first hatch, really good chance for survival. But Gillian talked about the second hatch. You know, it's not always a sure thing. They're going to make it just because they're delayed from when, when they were born. Yeah. So I think you have to give consideration to the bird, its ability and what it's going to go through, and how much of a breeding stock do you really have? Do I expect us to have to, you know, have these great numbers and all that? I'd love to see what we had before, but we're not there. Does it have to be up to that level? No. No, but I'd like to see it meet somewhere in between. And, yeah, everyone talks about the one great day they had, and it's like, you know, that's – that's not what happened every day consistently. Yeah. So someone over in a different county on the west side might be getting good numbers, and then someone over in another county is not getting very good numbers. And then there's another area that's good, and another area is margin. It's real pockety right now. Yeah. And so I think we need to give a little time for things to sort of come back. And, uh, you know, that would be... That's my opinion for whatever it's worth. I yeah. mean, they've, they've had this happen before, and then they, they go and they adjust the season dates again back favorable to people that want to hunt longer. But I think 
2017 was the second highest accounting of West Nile issues in this, in Wisconsin, and people they actually died from it that they had never had on record. So we, like I said, you just can't. My thinking is we're just not quite ready yet. Sure. Yeah, it's one that I've been following pretty closely as a Wisconsin grouse hunter, but I haven't been hunting Wisconsin all that long. You know, it's I only started over there in around 2015 or 16. And not to say that Wisconsin is isolated on an island. I mean, it, the Great Lakes states, you, they kind of go hand in hand oftentimes. Right. But the thing is, Minnesota and Michigan closed near the end of the year. So Wisconsin being open through January was kind of unique and i know it wasn't i don't think it was always that way that rule that was changed sometime within i i guess recent history i don't know exactly when but i do know that there is a fear from folks out there that if january goes away it will never come back and so i understand that and again i don't want to spend too much time spinning on this topic but I do appreciate Joe's question asking about oh, how yeah. to how to how to get involved, how to make a difference. And I can say that, you know, it was open for public comment through August twenty sixth, and then they kinda had they had this like emergency meeting and they put this rule on the table. They're gonna be voting the NRB, this board will be voting, I believe, to pass or not pass the emergency rule later this month, later September. So mm-hmm we will know soon enough whether or not that emergency rule is enacted this year because actually the Wisconsin hunting regulations this year said that it would be open through January because that the emergency rule from last year was just a one-year thing. So they're trying to enact it again. We do not know whether or not that will happen yet, but we will find out very soon. Yep. And it's, it's, you know, everyone has their opinions. It doesn't mean one's right or one's wrong. You know, it's just, you know, we're all going to have our opinions on it. Basically, no different on, you know, what type of dog do you want to hunt? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. All right, next question from Ray Derman. Now, we got a few questions on this state, and so I'm gathering maybe there's something up, but you can you can clear it up for us. He's asking, what is the best map for North Maine? Does Do you have maps for Maine, Anne, or do you not? Because some of the questions seem to apply that you don't have maps for Maine, and I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, Maine's a real interesting state. Okay. There's tons and tons of timber company land. Yep. I've worked on three of the counties west of the New Hampshire border and over into Jackman and over into uh, being a Maine area. But what's difficult about Maine is many times they'll go and they will hunt, and not hunt, but they'll harvest an area. It looks like a clear cut. And then five to six years later, they come in, and if it's not regenerating like it should be, then they'll herbicide it, and they'll plant pines there. And so it's a really difficult, difficult place to map. You can find the cuts. And what I've done in that area is basically I've started to look for cuts that are closer down by the water, and I've got wetland data in there for these areas for trying to finding uh, uh, tag alder areas that... um, touch these these type of cuts i've tried to keep away from the cuts that are higher up the sides of the mountains out there and then do trails and roads where i see them come into an area but maine is basically all that data and all that work is locating the cuts basically it's all done by hand there's no data i gotta create it so there isn't anything out there that has all the cuts across the whole state I'm slowly working my way across it, and I don't do, I mean, I'll look at, like, one, like the county that 
borders right up against New Hampshire. I mean, I looked a lot up in the tip up there, and they've converted quite a few of their cuts into pine, and then I dropped down sort of, oh, about 40, 50 miles south, and, you know, I'm finding cuts in that area, and then I keep jumping to areas, and I, I sort of stay away from the towns and cities and try to find areas more, you know, remote, away from everything. But it's a um, it's an interesting and very detailed and long process. Sure. Maybe this would be that's a, that's a good answer, and maybe this would be a good chance to again. I think it varies from place to place and habitat to habitat, but to kind of talk about how you accumulate this information because folks may or may not know, Anne does not go out and drive every forest road across the country and map all this stuff herself. You are in some places you're limited to the information you can gather, right? Right. Maine's one of those. There's always wetland data, and unless you can work with GIS and start doing major conversions, it's it's difficult, and it's extensive, and there's a lot of variations of wetland data, like lots of different codes that portray different types. There's no different than the data that I'm you know using in out west. Uh, it's no different than what we want to know about tag alder here. Sure. You know that's huge for us. So you have to look here, and then you have this data set, and then you end up saying, I don't need the whole thing. I only need this narrow band of this information. So, like, what I'll do sometimes is I'll look at imagery out there. I can tell where the tag holder is, and I literally take one format of data, convert it into another format, overlay it on Google Earth, look at it, change the transparencies, then look at the coding, and then start sorting and there'll be a lot of that. And the same thing with the, you know, finding cuts out there. I'm going back and forth over the historical imagery, trying to locate the cut, but then also trying to say, look at it and say, okay, did they plant pine or didn't they? And sure. why, what's going on here? You know, and if there's not enough imagery, it's hard to come up with an answer. And then I'll take and take elevation and I'll crop it. And I'll even throw that onto Google Earth for like out in Maine and throw it in a 3D to see where the cuts are and the taper, you know, the, the uh, steepness. Uh, over in New Hampshire, I threw in soil information so that you can find areas that are moister, that have more moisture versus areas that don't. And, it, it, you know, an emphasis on drainage or lack of drainage uh, to find those areas. So I'm looking with state, federal, county data, and it just, I mean, it's like a smorgasbord. You're yeah. looking for data and researching all over the place and then taking the piles and and crunching them. And I'll even take like a TIFF is like a raster. And there's certain things I need out of that raster. And I'll convert the whole raster to a file. And then you got to take the file and then try to smooth the edges. And it, it's hours. It's a lot <laughs> of hours of work. Yeah, a lot goes into it, and uh, the end result, uh, when it when it all comes together, it's I found it to be very useful in, in my hunting. So, uh, cool. All right, moving on to the next question from one of my buddies, Kellen Crow. He's in Michigan. His question is, what places slash habitat are the best to look for during midday when the grouse seem to, quote, disappear? So kind of that maybe that midday lull. What is an jander not going to do when she's out hunting it depends on the time of year okay in the winter time or i should say from about the third week of october on it sort of stays the same sure but 
when you're leading into that second to third week, you've got temperature as an issue. So I'm looking, you know, basically the birds start out low and they work up higher in elevation. And then they drop back again into a medium sort of place, not all the way back down to where they spent the night, but not too far from that edge. You need to get out of the sun. You need to feel coolness on your face. You need to be in the shadows because that's what that bird's going to do. And most of them are, you know, if they've got a full crop, they're moving around a little bit, but not a lot, depending on the temperature. Typically at 65 degrees on up, these birds sort of stall out and it's like, okay, we ate, we're going to go sit. And they're just, that's why a lot of times you have that flurry of activity in the morning and it's quiet because they got a full, full crop. And they're, they're not just, moving as much. And, no, yeah. and they're not ready to feed again. So basically I try to find where they rest. And where they rest a lot of times is right under some balsam fur a lot of times or a thick area where they can just sort of chill out and watch things go by. You know, how many times have we gone down past the trail and had the grouse flush right behind us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, a lot of times, is the chill-out time. Because you also see, if you go back to where it flushed, go walk back along that area, especially if there's a little berm where they pushed it up with the bulldozer, and you'll find that the bird, bird will go up and over the berm on the backside and then, then have that concealment to get try to get ahead of you and then flush out or go the other way. But there's usually a, a nesting mole, and it's not so much, quote, a nesting mole for eggs. It's a mole that just sort of hunker down, and they got their backside covered, and then they look left and right, and they don't have to worry about a predator coming from the back. They're right there to launch themselves out. So that can be on the edge of a trail. That can be on a clump of pines where they could say something's coming from this end. I can escape to the back end and then go out the back door. So it's usually... Not the high elevation, not the low elevation, it's somewhere in between. But you also got the dispersal going on then, too. So it's not a, you know, sometimes these birds are still moving because they're like, it's like they're on a mission. And so I try to find where they're going to loaf. And I've found that it's sort of, it's not usually all the way down the lowland. It's not all the way down in the up, you know, all the way up. Sure. It's somewhere, usually conifers are part of it. Yeah. I am picturing a spot that I found that's basically exactly as you described. It was two seasons ago, and I was actually there pretty late season. We had a really, really nice day in December when it was like 45 degrees and there was no snow on the ground. I remember hunting, and I didn't see the grouse, didn't find the grouse. He gave me the slip, but I found on the edge of kind of a clearing, there was a little mound, and on top of that little mound, there was a little short four or five foot balsam and right under that balsam was a little a little dirt bowl where you could yep. see that a grouse would sit there and dust or loaf or whatever yeah it's interesting what they use i mean and and it's sort of like if you get so that you can recognize that i don't have the right word for it but that shadow how dark it should be or how light sure, it should sure be, yeah yeah you start you start looking at something and your dog's getting birdie and you look ahead and then you just like, you can almost say, okay, you're in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you know, I think the, I think the folks out, I know AJ, the creative director of project up and he talks about this out in New Hampshire. Like they call it dark cover. I might, I might be blanking on the word, but they call it that, you know, in, in those thick, thick conifers where it's yeah. just, it's always dark in there. Yeah. All right, Kellen had a second question, and that was, 
what habitat, or this kind of leads into sort of the, how you started answering his question kind of, but what habitat or things should I look for during late season? And he, he was really implying when the snow flew. So when there is snow on the ground, but it's not necessarily so deep that we would stay out of the woods. So late season, the ground is snow covered, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's late November and folks are still out there. Sure. Everything's, you know, if they can walk to their food from the conifer, which could be hazel brush, you know, like a nice hazel brush patch that connects maybe, you know, a nice food source. And for me, where I'm at, which isn't always going to be the same for people in other areas, but I think in some ways you got to, what I describe, you'll have to sort of interpret for, okay, I remember something that sort of, everything was sort of in one area. And we've talked about this before about one-stop shopping. And I need some hardwoods, I need some conifer, and I need some hazel here. And if there's some mature aspen, which, you know, they would eat off the male buds, all of that coming together makes it real simple for a uh, bird, you know, to survive. And it's it's not about expending a lot of energy because, as we mentioned, they don't carry in to the season, you know, the winter season, a lot of fat. They they only have so much. And so they have to be within basically one flush. So let's say that you move a bird. Take time to look at what's around this. Usually there's a lot of conifer. They're able to run from one conifer to the next because there's very little snow underneath that conifer. They can move normally. And, you know, anytime they have to go into the deeper snow and try to get through it, it's little bit rough on them but if they can run from one to the next it's great if they can go right from the edge of the conifer right into the hazel brush and then you know it's like a secondary canopy and eat you know the catkins that works or they can you know fly up into some aspen trees and eat buds or you know other buds of other trees so it's compact so when you're looking like i was showing a guy the other day on the maps is that and what's been really interesting, I've started to mark up the maps for where I'm here in drumming in the spring because I do a lot of my late season scouting for where I'm in the spring because I look for the drummers, which in turn, the second to third week will be up here in the upper Midwest when the birds will shift into their late season habitat. So a lot of times it's where multiple cover comes together. You, you got you got older aspen, you got maybe a cedar swamp, and you got a, another aspen cut. It gives them options. So I, I don't know if that answered it, but it's hard to explain. Yeah. Um, yep. It takes experience, that's for sure. And I'm, you know, I'm attempting to learn more about it every time I take the woods. But I think probably the key takeaway, and I'll, I'll probably talk to Kellen about this, the key takeaway is really look for that mosaic and the diverse cover where you've got a lot of elements right. coming together in a close area. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Even even a trail is good because let's say you need snow and they're going to want a snow, snow burrow. You can't do it in the middle of the woods. They need some type of opening, too. Uh, so, you know, some of the open, like a old log landing uh, trail or not, I mean, even that can help. They're just, they, their requirements are food, cover, escape area, get out of the wind. Where am I going to snow roost? And repeat, 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 repeat. But, oh, I, I can't expend, spend very much energy, but the hens go in where the males are. Yeah. That's where the females are going to be. So if you know where the drumming's happening, 
you know where to start looking. Sure. All right. Next question. We're transitioning now to questions from Upland Journal, which is an online forum. I, I spend, uh, spend a fair bit of time on there, and there's a lot of very passionate Upland bird hunters on that forum and usually have a lot of good information to share on the forum. But I asked them for questions. We got one. This is a longer question. It's, it's actually a great follow-up to Kellen's question. But it's, uh, it was a thoughtful question from Dave Quint, and I, and I want to read it here. So I'm just going to read this, Anne, and then we can, we can break it down as needed. But Dave says, starting on September 15th, roughly the start of the season, moving forward at 15-day increments, what changes about the type of cover that Anne would be looking for birds in? What changes do the birds make as the season progresses? What are changes in the environment that would make Anne ignore one cover type and focus on another? For example, leaf drop or mass drop. Okay, so basically his first question is some of the stuff that we were talking about with Kellen's question, and that is how do you progress through the season and look for birds in different places as the season progresses? So I think we kind of addressed a lot of that stuff. Last year we talked about, I asked you, where you would be going on opening day and you gave a kind of a neat piece of insight as far as you told people to be aware of the dew that collected on their pants so maybe if we want to start early season and you could start there do you remember that ann yep yep okay september 15th where will i go this saturday (laughs) so what i'm going to do is if the weather cooperates first off your temperature is such a factor in the early season sure that that's going to dictate a lot, but I typically, let's just say you have a trail, because that's where I'm going to start at, and I'm thinking about a trail that you go in, I might cut through the hardwoods, and then the cut parallels with the hardwoods on, with a narrow band of aspen on one side, and it starts to go up into hardwoods, and then on the right-hand side, we've got aspen, and there's a finger coming on the right side so it's like lowland conifer tag alder and it's the conifers giving away to the tag alder and the tag alder is fingering up into the aspen and i like my stuff in bands i don't like a big huge cut i want a nice finger of lowland aspen trail they're all going the same direction now okay okay and then a little bit more aspen, and it's going up the hill, and you have that blend of aspen and hardwoods. So what you've got is, you start at the lower, you got the blend of the lowland conifer and the aspen, a little tag. And then as it proceeds on, that lowland conifer gives way to tag, and now you have a blend of tag and aspen. And then you have a whole band of aspen. Then you have the band of aspen with the edge of the trail. Then you have the trail. Then you have the edge of, yeah, <laughs> edge yeah, yeah. of the trail with the band of aspen and the band of aspen mixing with the with, with, with the hardwood. <laughs> it's all nice. Okay, that's a long answer. But... It looks beautiful in my mind, though, and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't go up too high and get gravelly. And it makes a little dip in the middle. And that means the bird's got like a sort of a hard left turn that they could come to where you got a, sort of some low area coming up toward the trail. So you have options there for these birds. So they could jump into the low area on the right, or as we go ahead, there's another low area. And, you know, there's, there's this, it's just, it gives them options. So I love habitat. 
an early season that is basically not far from the low area, but you're not getting all soaking wet and you're not in the tamarack. You're, you're about 20, 30, 40 feet out sure. from the low area. You got a nice stem damp, stem density. I can't talk today. Stem density. <laughs> and, uh, you've got, um, you have a uh, bunch berries, strawberries, a clean floor. It's not all this foxtail. If you guys want to look up foxtail, look it up so it's in your mind. Avoid it. <laughs> you know, and it's just got all these little options. So, you know, I mean, it makes it a challenge. I mean, some of these places you go into like this, the soil, you know, it's just it's darker. It's not a whole bunch of rocks. And, and it's just all this shifting that can go on. That's what I would start out with for probably almost to the first to second week of September, somewhere in there. And you mean October. Up, yeah, October. Yep, yep. yep, that's correct. And, you know, but the thing is, is like the latter part of September, the males are going to start to move around and start to break up. Okay. And they're going to go find where the other males are. In the first part of October, typically the hens start shifting, and they're going to find where they're going to spend the winter, which will be in amongst other males. The young males that shift this year are going to set up around, either find a new spot or they're going to start going out from where the original males are, you know, for the year, the older males. That is where I would start. I like habitat, and I honestly feel a lot of these birds, you know, if you're just finding one single bird, then it's typically a male uh, in the early part of the season. But you're looking for the brood is coming out of what we call the brood range so they've i've seen a lot more in this eye on the edges of the swamps so why would i go on to do a trail that takes me up over the top of a hill right now sure that's they're going to start so you need that lowland area uh, a little bit and then that i'm going to hunt for quite a while because the other thing is they know that safe a safe area because you know predators have a harder time the more dense it gets yeah it's, it's almost like it's imprinted on them that we try to go low when we want to get away. So they're learning at this point to go out beyond that comfort area that they had. Um, so they're going to work their way out from you know where they were raised. Okay, so I feel like we covered the late season stuff pretty good. But is yeah. there, so we talked early season, we talked late season. Is there another phase in there in between early and late in at that smack dab right in the middle of October? Anything else you might really change things up and have kind of a focused strategy at that point in time? Yeah, because I mean, basically, that cut that I just described to you didn't have hazel brush. Okay. Uh, and it didn't have a secondary understory canopy. And I think as, as you get into that second to third week of October, you need to start looking for some dense shrub components that could be the understory of a canopy, or you're going to go into possibly, a lot of these younger cuts don't have it. Now, we don't have as much hazel brush as you guys do over in Minnesota. Yeah, we got a pile and, of it. Oh, yeah, it's like a wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, you get into those over there and it's like you can get stuck <laughs> yep i've been there <laughs> yep but you you basically when i think of things here the cuts that don't have any understory i'll walk away from them because that understory gives a lot of protection when the leaves are all gone and it's also 
if you've got hazelbrush in there, that's also a food source. And I think they actually start to go into a blend of hardwoods, a blend of more mature aspen, a blend of hazel, and a blend of conifer that they can retreat to. And this isn't always the conifer that's 40, 50, 60 feet high. It's usually a little bit lower, like, you know, 20 to 40, somewhere in there. But it's the density that's the key. It's the type, if you crawled under it and looked out, you probably could only look out for about a foot high. And, you know, and you'd have trouble getting under it. You know, the dogs slip around in there. But you'd walk, you know, if there was a snowstorm, you got in the middle of it, it wouldn't be hitting you. (laughs) Yep. I think. I mean, that's that's what you got to you got to think about what they need. Sure. Yep. And, and then the other thing too is on your windy days, you need to get down below the wind. And get out of the wind. wind yeah. The I remember you talking yeah. about that before. Yeah, and then heat's such an issue too because when you lose all the leaves, you need to find it where it feels cooler, and that's typically you might get down over you know down low by a bog or by a bunch of swamp conifer and. You'll find them on the edge, but it's a little bit cooler. Yeah, well, certainly your word holds a lot more weight than mine, but I definitely do think that I've, I find a lot of success when I find, whether it's an aspen stand or it's a hardwood stand, if I can yeah. find anything with a really nice hazel brush understory, especially mm-hmm. after the leaves are gone, that's an area that I feel really confident in. I love that stuff, and I think I find a lot of birds and that kind of stuff. Oh, it's it's... The mix, yep. you know, you know, it, multiple transitions that come together. I mean, that's because right then you've created all these opportunities for that bird yeah. to either food, cover, or escape, and he can do it quickly. Yeah. So we're going to move on from Dave's question. I want to hit on one more thing that he asked that what was pretty interesting and just see if anything comes to mind for you. What are changes in the environment that would make Ann ignore one cover type and focus on another? For example, he says leaf drop and mast drop. So we kind of talked about when the leaves go down, what you might do. Anything other, anything else kind of odd, like with mast drop or anything like that, that would make you change your strategy? Anything come to mind? Well, I know in different areas of the country, because you don't have as much habitat, food, becomes a bigger issue sure um and you're hunting more by crop or food than you are we're typically hunting by habitat up here but what i would say there's been times didn't always like it but i've had to hunt in rain and the rain can be tough because we all know there's very little oil in a grouse's feathers and so they can't really get wet so if you have a steady rain and you're stuck hunting or you decide you want to go out and hunt, and steady's not, steady's the type is that probably in 10 minutes you'd be soaked, go find conifer, not too far from a cut, pretty close actually, that's 30 to 40 feet tall and is really tight together, where they can get up, they'll get up in those branches and they'll actually go from branch to branch. The guys will shoot and they won't hit anything and everyone's <laughs> happy. Um, the same thing with heavy snow that's the other thing like early wet snow find the densest conifer not very far from where you normally would hunt and that's where they're going to be okay Uh, you know it's uh i remember one person one time said 
I don't know how many birds we've seen, and I've been shooting at them, and all I've been hearing is seeing shadows and hearing them. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, well, you wanted to find birds. We found them. Yeah. Well, I, I can't get a shot off. <laughs> I said, well, I can't do everything. <laughs> of course, it gives me a chance to gloat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a spot last year that I found. I found it early season via your map, actually, via Scout and Hunt. I found it, spot I'd never tried before in an area that I had frequented for quite a long time. Went in there, had an awesome early season hunt. It had to be September because it was still pretty green. I think I flushed 20 birds in about two hours two and a half hours so it was a yep. really really good hunt i don't i don't think i walked out of there with a the bird in my bag I, I know i missed a few times but later in the season about the end of october that was the first chance i had to get back there i hunted it the same spot and hunted it in the similar fashion we actually had another group that went out and made another a big loop in kind of the same piece and we all hunted it and we flushed very few birds, two, three, four birds, maybe between the two different groups. And the one thing that happened was it was a very, very wet night the night before. And we hunted it first thing the next day. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of heavy, tall, dense, yeah. dense conifers in that cover. And so I just, I can't prove it, but I have a sneaking suspicion that those birds were sitting up there just watching us walk around underneath them. Yeah. Well, I remember, I mean, I've had times where... It almost sounds ridiculous. I'm standing there talking to someone, and I put my hand on a tree, and I had a grouse fly out of the tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, one guy starts to swing, and I'm ducking, and, and, and he says, I'm not going to shoot you. I said, but you were turning around. <laughs> 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 and I just couldn't believe you. Know, I just go and put my hand on the tree, and I'm like starting to lean up against, and we're going to chat for a bit, and, and this stupid bird comes right out of the tree. Uh, <laughs> but... You know, you have areas that, you know, that cover that I, you know, that I talked about first and described was never a good late season cover. It worked great in the early season, and then there just wasn't enough conifer and other food sources for them to be there for the rest of the, um, you know, the rest of the year. And there was never a lot of drummers. There was a few drummers, but not where they could expand their range and have a bigger area the food source was limited so i really think in the winter time the food is huge and the cover is so huge and just bringing it all together in one small area but you know it's 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 difficult to find those specific areas but when you find a group all together that's great and it is you know and you're typically then that time of year your groups are mainly comprised of hens because the males don't like each other so it's the hens that when you have multiple flushes late season those are hens going up and there might be one male in there but you know they they're extremely territorial and they don't want anything to do with the other one so yeah you find that it's a lot of fun but it's always been associated with hazelbrush yep all right, so the next question was asking about maps in Maine. I feel like we kind of covered that. Next, my buddy Ty, his comments were similar to Dave's that we talked quite a bit about. He was commenting on food sources and cover throughout the season, so we've kind of addressed that. But on food sources, you know, Ty was really asking, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts and on food and cover sources throughout the season. So we've talked quite a bit about cover. Anything more you can say 
on food sources, like some of the classic stuff that maybe you think people think about thorn apples, dogwood. I feel like we don't see a ton of that stuff in, in Minnesota. Some, I've been to some other places when I was hunting over in Michigan. I mean, there was a ton of thorn apples over there. I'd saw thorn apples over there. Like I'd never seen before. I, I, I picked them out more now because I I'm familiar with them and I can identify them better, but some places are are more known for having big dogwood crops and thorn apples and that kind of stuff. Well, I think part of it is you're looking for how long these this fruit crop lasts. Sure, and, you know, dogwood will lose its berries sooner than thorn apple will because you know it doesn't take many frosts and you lose they just drop right off. And dryness is another issue. Like I've seen a little bit of dogwood, but where I'm at, at least right now, we've been really dry. And the berries have already dropped. Like the bunch berries don't even have, which, you know, under the, you know, on the ground, I don't see berries this year hardly at all because it got dry at the wrong time. And even some of our catkins on the hazelbrush are not as long as they normally would be. So I think like this year, you need to look at possibly the precipitation analysis, but go the other way and see how much behind we are, because that's going to be affecting the crop source. And the better the crop will be where it had more moisture. Sure. Yep. So that's just something to think about. But yeah, the, 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 you know, I can't speak a lot to that because where I live, it's not a big issue. There's just, there's so much hazel brush here, yep. but I do know in places in Michigan, they talk about, you know, thorn apples and dogwoods and in other places, not just Michigan. And I think what you do is, you're going to have to think about the frost and has it affected it and, or how dry it is and think about that and then probably put waypoints at everyone you see. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you, can go, you can go back next year. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Especially a good, a good patch of thorn apples. I, again, I don't know where many are myself in the areas that I hunt, but I hunted some with a friend over in Michigan and boy, oh boy, you find a, a good old patch of thorn apples they, that can produce some grouse or it can be magnetic and bring those grouse in. Yep. Yep. It's a, it's a good food cover, you know, the high bush cranberries, sometimes they get into that. Sure. Uh, that's good this year. I've seen a lot of that. Uh, the winterberry is also another food source that you'll see are those are, are those those bright red little bright red berries yeah they're the ones that are in clusters yep. and they're on like a bush and the bush usually gets into a cluster and uh basically the birds like to go in there and you'll see it in the droppings you'll see this tiny little seed so okay. when you take the berry you squish it and you'll see the little seed and then you're like oh okay i've seen that in grouse droppings nothing too is when you go past you know you get into late season Take time to look at where the grouse came out from underneath the tree. Sure. And what, and then, you know, if you have a series of trees, just take time. I also look to see, is there droppings going from the beginning to the end? Which means they're working the whole, whole range of it. And it'll also help you associate the darkness with where the birds like to be. Got it. All right, next question. This is another one from Upland Journal, Grace in VA. Where does Anne get her data for creating the Northwinds map? We kind of talked about that. How often is it updated? The scout and hunt mobiles are updated every year. Every year. Okay. Every year. And more and more of it's going mobile. Okay. And then the next question was, does she drop off cuts, waypoints? Does she drop off cuts that get to a certain age 
which I can kind of answer that. I mean, you have a, you, you classify your cuts in that, I believe it's, is it nine to 15 years? Is that what you call prime Aspen or is that nine to 20? It's nine, nine to about 16, you know, and sometimes eight to 16 right in there. And then I use a different color for like the marginals. The ones it, that yeah, are aging out. Yep. Yep. So it's, so it, when, it, when something gets beyond that prime age, it doesn't just disappear. It's still there and it just becomes right. a different color. And that's, that's mm-hmm. actually one of the things that, that helps you analyze a piece of cover. If you see a couple of patches of bright red, which is prime age Aspen, and then it's surrounded or nearby some of the, that marginal cover, then, you know, you've got an area that it, you know, it's probably been in production for a while and there could definitely be some birds in there. The other thing, too, is, you know, some of that marginal cover will transition to, into better late-season cover. Sure, yep. Because you'll end up with more conifers, and, and that's something to look at. You know, I can think back of different places that I've hunted where I didn't have to very, go very far. I mean, I sort of stopped hunting the good stuff, you know, the prime stuff, and then started shifting out to that border stuff. All right, next question this is one of my favorite questions of everyone that we got this is from ess novice from upland journal what role does she see for independent handheld gps units in the age of increasingly sophisticated smartphones and this obviously has applications to your maps and your business and and it's also it's definitely important to hunters because it that industry and that market has been kind of changing so i think that's a really neat question it's changing really fast, yep. and I've, I've thought this for a long, long time, that the GPS, you know, yes, we use it a lot for the dog and for controlling the dog and those of us that, you know, use that, but my market has shifted so much to scout and hunt that, you know, there's still some people that want to use the printed maps, and I believe it's age-related, and I get that, but... You can do almost everything you want with a GPS. You can do it with a phone now. And Scout and Hunt lets you create waypoints. You can attach pictures to your waypoints. You can attach documents to the waypoints. You can track. You can create tracks. I mean, there's a lot of parallel there with a regular GPS, and it's all on your phone. So it's good. I always felt that that's going to be one of the tough markets for for the GPS is the advancements that's coming in phones. Yeah, and it's such a part of our lives. I mean, if you had asked me, you know, eight years ago, that I would have a phone with me all the time, and it would become a very important part of my business, I would have said you were nuts. But then I said the <laughs> same thing about about the computer too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's you know a lot of times it actually lowers the barrier to entry for some of these technologies for folks because they've already, again, the phone is something that, you know, it's almost a commodity. I mean, it kind of is people just accept that they're going to have a smartphone for many folks. So then you can, you can then offer this technology where they don't have to go out and buy a separate piece of hardware. They already have the hardware so they can just pay for the software, get all the benefits. A lot of times it does lower the barrier to entry for folks, which is cool. Also, it really drives the, the market and the technology, you know, that we have in our hands, the cell phone market, because they sell so many, it drives the performance of those devices, which allows you to do, you know, cooler and cooler stuff with the maps. When it really switched for me was when it almost became standard for phones to kind of be waterproof, shockproof, dustproof. I mean, before they were so delicate, whereas now it doesn't matter if you get a little rain on one and, and it's, it's fine to take them out in the field. That's what kind of 
that's what when it kind of changed for me. The only thing I wish they had is like a lanyard. Yeah, yeah, cold. sure. Yep. You know, because that's sort of scary. You're out there, it's like, oh no, what did I do with it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, good question. Uh, all right, we're gonna move on. Next one is fins and feathers. He was again. He was asking asking about main maps, plans to create maps for main. So we kind of covered that. You have some, but it's a it's a tough state to work with, right? Yep. I mean, I'll be expanding it, but I'll tell you what. I'm about cross-eyed when I get done with a couple counties, and it'll just have to be a few counties at a time. And like I said, it's it's a real big project. It's never been done. I mean, it'll get done, but I mean, just just those three counties of the data I've put together, it's over, I think it's at least a gigabyte. Wow. Yeah, because I also brought in the imagery that shows where the conifer is and the hardwoods and the shrub component and the wetlands. I mean, I'm trying to duplicate what we do here in the Midwest as close as I can. I mean, it's not going to be exactly, but... You know, you find the cuts, you do the trails and that, but then I've also brought habitat in to at least give people an idea of what they're dealing with. Yep. All right. Next question from a friend of mine, Brandon Speaks. He is interested in a couple of things. He had some of the same questions as other folks, but he wanted to ask, how does she look at grouse and woodcock cover differently? Which I thought was was a unique question. So I'll let you tackle that one first. The grouse and woodcock, I mean, soil is a big thing to me because a woodcock needs to be able to probe. And if it's dry, they can't probe. And they have what's called a prehensile bill, which means they can put it, probe in the ground and then open it up. And it's barbed, which then pulls the worm out. They also, if you're going to hunt woodcock and it's a frosty morning, you're going to want to have the cut facing to the east so they get the sun sunrise on them. That will be, I found, important. The other thing, too, is I also look for big raspberry patches where if you ever go into a raspberry patch, the soil is just like fluff, you know, under there. And it's like worm bedding. And the other part of that is like, you know, young saplings of hardwood, especially like sugar maple. You will find, uh, I'll make sweeps in there uh, for looking for woodcock. Uh, Sometimes... The areas aren't very far from moisture and where they would want to be to probe to, you know, have softer soil. It's not so much the gravelly knolls and things like that. You've got to, the soil is huge for these birds for feeding. And then I'm looking at the stem density typically is thicker uh, when they come up. When a hen flies, she tends to go up, hits the top, and then out. And when the males take out, take off which are smaller they tend to go more lateral Mm -hmm. when they fly but so much of it is you know when when you get a whole flights coming in i'm looking for moisture edges on tag alders what area is going to warm up first in the morning because these little birds want to warm themselves and basically a lot of times they're just they're not that far from a, a moisture area a good good tag under soil or some stuff like that so you find that nice young habitat and you could you know and they tend to basically i'm looking at the nine to ten right in there it's not that i don't find them in it but if i was going to just target woodcock i like cuts that face to the east that are young and that have a tag order not very far got it all right 
Uh, next question there from Brandon, what age does a cut become not worth the time to hunt? So we did just, just a few minutes ago, we briefly talked about what you call prime age Aspen and then how the cover kind of transitions out of that, but it doesn't just all of a sudden become worthless, but you're going to spend your time focusing on that prime age Aspen and then whatever else is around is kind of there, right? Yeah, it is. And here's the thing, you know, your soil is going to determine how quick all that stuff sure. happens. Yep. But sandy soil, it seems to sometimes take a little bit to get a start and all of a sudden it gets started, but it's usually not quite as long lived because the water leaches right out of it. Good soil, basically that will last pretty decent. Like out east, I like cuts that are a little bit older because they don't grow as fast in some of those areas because of the soil. I remember when I was out in Bingham, Maine, looking at areas, the nicest cut I saw was like 17 to 18 years old. That's not saying the young cuts aren't good, but there's a lot of gravel out there. And you've got to find places where the gravel drops down and it's, it sort of banks down into a, like a flat area just before you hit the conifer in the low area. And what happens is so many times is with aspen, aspen suckers you know, basically through the roots and it comes up and the trees start thinning and it how fast do they grow and as they're thinning they're creating openings which then allow weeds to come in and you really just have to walk through that cut and start looking at it and looking and saying okay there's, you know, I've been on here 30 minutes and I don't even think half of it's good, it's getting weedy well it's time to bail then mm-hmm. You know, because it doesn't all happen like evenly across the cut. But what you might find is that the upper end is changing quicker than the lower end. I found that to be an, you know, a situation. And sometimes it shifts you down low, which then what happens is, is that the world for the grouse then is starting to get smaller and smaller. And it's time for them to move on pretty soon. So the quality of the cuts, you have to walk into them and look at them. You know, when, when you have a lot of birds... They'll, they'll tolerate bigger, you know, marginal areas more. But when we don't have as many as what we do now, you know, we have less, they're going to be in the best of the best. All right. So that's Brandon's question. Now we got a few more before I let you go. We're going to switch over to some of the questions we got on Instagram and look at a few of these. First one had to do with... We talked a lot about cover, but we haven't talked about it exactly in the same way. So the first question is, what is your favorite cover to hunt? I think you kind of explained that. You kind of described it as we went through the stages yeah. of the of the season that you're gonna you're gonna target different things. The other thing too is late season, same thing. I like bands. Sure. I mean, half a flush or one flush, conifer on the low edge, uh, aspen. And then it'll go up into hardwoods where you have, you know, your ironwood catkins and things like that. So the birds can actually, when you picture it, they can go through from the conifer, they get into the hazel brush, then into the aspen, and then they can go up a little bit, make one flush into the ironwood. When they're done with the ironwood, one quick sail, they're right back in the conifer. All right, next one was, we talked about this a bit earlier, but I'll let you expand on it if need be. Will scout and hunt ever include habitat for other species like woodcock, pheasant, and sharptail? So definitely it already does. 
and maybe you could talk about some of the other species that you're working on and, and anything else you have out there. Basically, you know, you'll see me look at shrub components more out west, variations from sagebrush height to uh, wetland data height. That's going to start to be coming into play. And when I say wetland data, you know, a lot of times you're into the draws. Um, you'll see fire data. You're going to see a lot of data overlays that are going to come into this. I'm hoping to eventually add precipitation analysis data that can be overlaid onto the maps and basically trying to expand it so you can make more decisions. Okay. Two more, I think here we've got one is what do you look for in satellite imagery to find good grouse cover? And you and I kind of chatted about this one before we started recording. That is a, that's a long lengthy detailed question, but I think you have some resources out there on that. Don't you, Ann? Yeah, I do. If, um, what I'll do is I'll put, I did a video on it, and I talked a little bit about it, about looking at imagery to find cuts, and and I did something like that on it. And I'll just post it back on the Scout and Hunt page, and you can look at it. It's got a video, and I talked through the whole thing using Google Earth. Okay. You know, so that'll help that person there. Perfect. And there was a couple questions that were kind of similar, so we'll address them in one, and it was any good books, resources to help a beginner ID trees, bushes, and grouse forage. And that would be, uh, that'd be something I'd be interested in myself because I've, I've gotten better and better at identifying it, but it's only been the last handful of years or so that I've really started paying close attention to the grouse covers I hunt. That's the problem. There's nothing really that's that specific for identification of, okay, this is his brush. This is, you know, it's, it's not narrowing it down for this is 101 on grouse cover. Sure, yeah. Uh, but the only thing is, like what I told you, is you're going to start seeing some videos being put on Scout and Hunt, and they're going to, okay, guys, this is what Tag Alder looks like. And, and I understand there's people that are coming in and they what in the heck is Tag Alder? Yep. What's Hazelwood? Yep. So I'm going to do some videos and show you guys what it is and talk a little bit about it. But it's just and then okay this is a young cut the reason it's really weedy and explain that this is better you know and you just start going through the age range this is a 10 year old cut you know this is you know so you'll be able to look at the progression of how the aspen comes in and the changes in that and then we'll also do some information about you know here's a hardwood cut basically we're talking uh, sugar maple and that and yes it has the stem density, but what makes this different from an aspen cut in the quality? Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that, as I'm sure the folks listening are as well. Uh, I think that's I think that'll do it for us, Ann. That was a lot of stuff. That'll be a lot for people to chew on. I I can't thank you enough for joining us again for our uh, annual preseason grouse habitat grouse mapping conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Wish you the best this season, and you and I will keep in touch. And I'm looking forward to trying out the map in North Dakota next week. Yeah, well, I'm glad, and I hope you have a great trip, and the same thing, have a real good season, and thanks again for having me on. Absolutely. What is the best place for folks to go to learn more about Northwind Enterprises, Scout and Hunt, all, all the stuff that you're working on, Ann? Basically, there's mobilehuntingmaps.com, and then there's also the uh, www.scout dash and dash I will throw both of those links into the show notes. People can check it out there. Thank you again, and have a great day and best of luck this season. All right. Yep. Same to you. Take care. Bye, Ann. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs or Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.